Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Deep in History, in which Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson and I take a little bit of time to, to uh, walk through Irenaeus's wonderful book, Against Heresies. You know, Monsignor, I still like that opening music. A lot, a lot of times people choose for their podcasts, you know, big bands or big orchestras and blaring stuff. I feel like this one just kind of cuts us away from all the craziness that's happening in the world oh, and kind yes. of makes us relaxed a bit. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just wonderful to get lost in these early Christian texts. Yeah, we um, need to break free yeah, yeah. from all the voices in our culture to go back and hear what were, what were so important early days of the church. The reason we are doing this folks, is because in the work of the Coming Home Network, we've long recognized that for so many people that are on the road to the Catholic Church, that it's rediscovering the writings of these early fathers. Uh, you know, for so many of us in our Christian faith, the, the, we went right from the Bible to today. We mm -hmm. knew there were reformers or we knew there were different, but really it's the Bible to today. In fact, I know many Christians that think that's all you need. I just give me the Bible. I don't need any history whatsoever. So the, in my mind, the, re, the reason going back to Irenaeus and against heresies is, is to get a bullet point along that path to help us understand where we've come today. And actually, for me personally, it helps me maybe recognize ways in which we've got way off base today because of the trajectory that Irenaeus revealed that Christianity was on into the end of the second century. There are ways in which, because of the, I believe, the attacks of the devil, that it forced things to happen in Christianity that eventually led to many divisions and schisms, and, and we're still reaping the result of that today. Um, so we're going to pick up Today, Monsignor, uh, we're going to start, we're in chapter, uh, book four, we're going to start in chapter 20, we're going to pick up on page 369, and our goal today is to go all the way to page 383, book four, chapter 25. And now before we jump into that, Monsignor, what I would like to do, though, is just pick up again on the summary of what we had covered last time. And the reason I'm doing this is uh, I felt when we were done last time that there were a lot of things that we would have liked to have said, but we didn't either get to because we, we waxed a bit eloquently last week, didn't we, Monsignor? I mean, we were there for over an hour, uh, we did go on and on, yeah. I was hearing people snoring who had been <laughs> listening to us even as we, we gave that. But the, the title of last week's program was Seeing God and Living to Tell About It. And so the, the theme was this issue of seeing God, the Gnostics in their way of trying to see it, and Irenaeus trying to talk about But... I wanted to make sure, just to make one last point on, on this idea of, of how do you see God? And I had mentioned last time that Irenaeus four times quotes this idea and about how one sees God. And as kind of a summary, I'd like to draw our attention to the bottom of page 366. And this is in book four, chapter 20, first, or section five. He makes this statement, and this is, again, a summary of what he has said a number of times in this whole section, and that is this. He says, I grant that in respect of 
his greatness and marvelous glory, no man shall see God and live. And that was the title of our thing. Mm -hmm. For the Father is incomprehensible, but in respect of his love and mercifulness and of his almightiness, he grants even this to such as love him. I mean to see God. Now, the, the reason this, I want to go through this again, is there's a couple things here. I've come to, to believe in my own daily scripture study over many years that one of the most important words in the Old Testament, I think I've mentioned this on the pro side, is the Hebrew, Hebrew word hesed. A, a good Hebrew would say it more gutturally, right? Chesed. And it's a word that has a number of translations, but in the Revised Standard Version, which I think is the translation that best represents this very important concept, it translates it as the steadfast love of God. And when you read the Psalms, Monsignor, you read the Psalms every day, although you read it in a different translation. But if you read the Psalms as your daily liturgical reflection, you will come across the phrase, the steadfast love of God, mm -hmm. over and over and over. It's in nearly every—that word, chesed, is in nearly every book of the Old Testament. You don't find it in the New Testament— Translated that way because it's translated by the word in the Septuagint that means mercy. So whenever you encounter the mercy of God in the New Testament, it's the same word for the Old Testament word chesed, which means steadfast love. Now, a good example is in, in uh, Psalm uh, 107. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to the sons of man. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for the wonderful works of the sons of man. The reason I'm getting that is that I believe behind what Irenaeus is saying is the way people have always seen God is through the expression of his, his steadfast love. This is how you see him. And if you read the scriptures, look for this. Look for that phrase, steadfast love. I, that's why I like RSV. I think the New American Bible translates just as love. And that's like in the New Testament, there's four words for love. And if it, they're all translated love, you don't quite get the distinction between agape love and phileo love and servile love or eros. You need that. And my point is, if you bring this up to Jesus, what is the central, most important aspect of the gospel? As today we need to live our faith, what is the most important thing? Different Christians have different ideas. What is the most underlying important thing? Monsignor, what does it say in the catechism? that it's not enough for a person to be a member of the church. It says they can't be saved unless they what? Love. That's what the love catechism says. Love of God, said. love of neighbor. It says you cannot, it's not enough to be a member of the church if you do not love. And we skip over that. We flippantly think, eh, No. And I want to draw attention to John 14. Here is Jesus in the night, the last night. This, uh, it's assumed that John 14, 15, 16, and 17, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are all when he's in the upper room. Uh, he's washing their feet, and then he's giving them the final marching orders that end with his prayer that they stay united. And in the midst of that, Thomas comes to him and says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know? And then he gives this section. Let me read this. 
he says. He goes on and says, um, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me, comes to the Father, but by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Henceforth, you know him and have what? Seen him. This is the context of Irenaeus. How do you see God? How do you see God? Jesus. That's what he's telling him. If you want to see the Father, you, you've seen him. Philip said, I, Lord, show us the Father. We shall be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Philip, have you been with me so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. This is what Irenaeus is talking about. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now, Monsignor, I think this connects with what we're going to do today, right? Because in all we're going to do today, Jesus has been shown all through the, the Bible, through the patriarchs, through the prophets, through their visions, through their actions, their deeds, right? I mean, that's what we're going to talk about today. He's saying, if you've seen me, and then he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater, greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whoever asks in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now I'm at the point I want to get to. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. We believe in Christ, faith, we have hope for the future, and hope means salvation and living it out, doing the deeds he empowers us to do. But faith leads to hope, leads to charity. That's St. Paul. And it is that charity through which we see Christ, and we, in, and we have that, that abiding relationship, the importance of that. I sometimes think, that we forget that the most important thing about our Christian faith is not primarily the faith or the hope. It's the charity. Paul said that, right? Faith, hope, love abide, but the greatest of these is love. I wanted to make that point because that, to me, is what, what Irenaeus is getting at in this whole section the Gnostics, all of us are trying to see God looking at ways. And the point is, we see him through his love and how he's shown his love. We see him when we are changed. You know, uh, John says in 1 John, how do you know you know him? It's because you love. That's how you know you know God. Because all of a sudden, you're loving in a way you didn't before. You're, you're seeing people different. In fact, he says, if you don't love your neighbor and you say you'll love God, you're lying. It's really that expression, and, and, and I think that's, the, that's, I think, behind the whole concept of what Irenaeus is getting at, Monsi. Um, just, you know, putting us all in context of the time he wrote, of course, he was writing against the Gnostics and against their hyper-intellectualism. Um, you can't find your way to God um, just by using um, the intellect. But he's also, we see, I think, in Irenaeus, um, the evangelist here, too. He doesn't have a culture that we presume that we have, you know, where there's at least some minimal understanding about how a person has a relationship with God. Um, in the ancient world, you know, the pagans didn't love God or the gods. They didn't. You know, the idea of having a personal relationship with the gods, you don't find that in those texts much. Um, yeah. the, you know, the whole idea of our relationship with the gods is to, you know, remember um, the blessing in Fiddler on the Roof, you know, may the 
May God bless the czar and keep him oh, yeah. far, far away from me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and and St. Irenaeus is basically showing us here um, that this is the this is the primary way that we approach him and we can be pleasing to him yep. Is, yep. is through that. I, and that's the way he approaches us. I, I guess what I, what I am so moved by, the context of Irenaeus that you're talking about, when he was writing and why he was writing, is we see the, from Christ, so what Irenaeus is saying is this is the way it's been from the beginning. It's really been about the love of God. In fact, he he talks about remember the 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 natural primal law mm-hmm. from the very beginning was love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, your neighbors yourself. That's been there from the beginning. It didn't get invented uh, by God and Moses. Uh, it didn't get invented by Jesus when he's talking to that Pharisee. Jesus pointing out this has been the core from all the way through. And and the problem in the Old Testament is that the people love for God would be lost. And, of course, God warned Moses and, and David, don't go marrying those, those women from those pagan things because your hearts will get turned. And that's what happened. So it comes all the way through to Christ. Oh. And that's why our Lord and the New Testament writers were warning people, you speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Irenaeus is trying to fight that battle. There's truth here as we fight against the Gnostics, but why is he writing this book? That he might convert the Gnostics. It's both and. The way I look at church history after this is that that, a lot of that was forgotten. That there were battles over things and sometimes the charity was not as clear. And to me, this is a bullet point in history where it was still being emphasized both in. Now, today, we, you know, what does love mean? We, we live at a time when everybody has a different view of love. But uh, anyways, I wanted to point that out, Monsignor. Uh, okay. I really yeah. believe that that's an important part of this, remembering that aspect of the gospel. But he moves on, and I'm going to uh, ask you if you could do something for us. Yes, uh-huh. Um, there's one way for us to cover this next section, and that is to go through it line by line and paragraph by paragraph, quote by quote. I had a hard time. I've been through this section a number of times in the last week to put a a summary over it. it was tough. And I'm wondering if, if maybe the best way for us to cover this in a reasonable time is to maybe state, talk about it. What is what's going on here? You know, and if with that, what, what would we call this episode, Monsignor? And uh, really, what's the bigger picture of what we're looking at in these uh, in this section through through uh, chapter twenty-five? Marcus, um, yeah, if yeah, I was trying to sum it up uh, when we were discussing this a little bit before we started the podcast um, today. And I think it all comes down to Irenaeus making the argument um, against, especially the Marcionite sect of the Gnostics, that we're all in this together. And this is a whole family of faith we're talking about from the very beginning to the very end. And so in these pages, um, we see how Abraham is our father. We, we learn how um, the prophets and the patriarchs look forward to, prophesied. They had visions of what was to come with the gift of Christ. Um, and all of that, I think, gets so beautifully summed up, as, as you pointed out, on page 383. Um, and I just read a couple of uh, sentences in section three, right at the middle of the page there. And this is a wonderful summation, I think, of what what St. Irenaeus is arguing here. It was meet that while something should be foretold in a fatherly way by the prophets, others should be typified in a legal way 
by the prophets, sorry, the fathers and then the prophets. Others, again, should be fully traced after the delineation of Christ. Uh, so there's these three different ways that um, things about God are laid out um, by those who have received adoption. But all are shown forth in one God. And, and then go to the end of the paragraph there. Thus the patriarchs and the prophets sowed abroad the word concerning Christ, but the church reaped, that is, gathered in the fruit. And I just see this as a, a marvelous uh, account of how the church, if we can put it this way, uh, the church has always been. Uh, I said, said the church just didn't begin at Pentecost. Um, the church has always been. The, this, these are the people of God. And I, what's so striking to me when I think about how difficult relations between Christians and Jews were at this time, um, Irenaeus is really blowing that all aside by saying, you know, we are, we're all yeah. part of a, a, a part of one family of faith. And um, anyway, he, that's what I think. He talks well, about the, um, so there's this, even to use uh, Pope Benedict's phrase, hermeneutic of continuity. I mean, really, that's what's going on here. Yeah. That Christ, first of all, he talks about Christ being present all the way through. Uh, through visions. So the prophets have, the patriarchs and the prophets have visions. He talks about those all the way through visions. Uh, visitations, too. Right. Um, you know, think of who was, um, who was wrestling. Right. <laughs> right. So Arenaeus points yeah. that out. Again, he's talking yeah. to he's talking to a group of folk that do not see this continuity. That's right. So this is, I think, why we have to appreciate where the time Arenaeus is writing. Because on the one hand, he's writing to people that don't see and recognize this continuity. On this side of it, we're, we're living at a time where the vast majority of people kind of assume it so much that we take it for granted. Um, I mean, why is it that the church in her liturgy always has a reading from the Old Testament, a reading from a psalm, a reading from an epistle, and then a reading from the Gospels? Because the church assumes there's a continuity. Um, and some homilists feel an obligation to preach on all four of those every Sunday. Uh, sometimes it gets a bit long, but uh, uh, but to show the continuity. Aaron Ace has shown that. Christ was there. He visited. He appeared. Number two, in visions to, mm -hmm. to patriarchs and to prophets. Uh, the appearances of Christ, we see that in, in, in section 11, you could go there. And then third, he points out, and this begins in section 12 of chapter 20, through the deeds, things that happened in the Old Testament, uh, whether they were in the actual historical deeds or in the more um, uh, uh, prophetic deeds, like Hosea marrying uh, an adulteress, that he is—he's also emphasizing that Christ is in those, but also these are all types of the church, right, Monsi? That's right. And um, Marcus, I—you know—I we have a mature uh, audience joining us, right? So I—I I just I want to put this in the starkest possible terms I can think of. <laughs> um, this is how awful the opposition was that Irenaeus was dealing with. Um, these Marcionites particularly believed that everything, everything until 
their founders got the found the way, everything else was junk. But that's not really the right word. <laughs> Here I'm going. I'm going to go. I apologize if I offend anybody. Everything up to the Gnostics was shit. And Irenaeus points that out um, earlier in the, in Against Heresies. They literally believed that everything from creation to until the time when the Gnostics got the real message, that it was all um, excrement from uh, these lower entities in um, in the world or in the universe. So they, they literally believed that. Well, actually, Monsignor, now I'm trying to figure out, I can't remember exactly which of the epistles that was, but you remember that's exactly what Paul came to the conclusion of his background. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> the exact word. Right? Yeah. I can't. I, I might have been Galatians. I forget where it was where he saw. Yeah, I have to look that up. I, I'm not. I'm right now, my mind is yeah. just not. But you know what I'm saying? He looked at, you know, these are my credentials. He goes through his whole mm -hmm. credentials, blah, blah, blah. In the end, he said, and to me, that's a whole bunch of, and actually the translations yeah. don't give the translation, which is accurate, that you just gave. <laughs> so it's interesting to make that, that the Gnostics use that exact phrase of Paul in a way to see everything that came before him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, you, you couldn't have a starker contrast between... Um, between Irenaeus's understanding and, and Marcion's, if you will. Let me uh, to jump into that then. Yeah. A couple of, I'm just looking at my notes to see if these fit. A, a couple of summarizing quotes, maybe, They're, again, without. Um, on page 372 in section 420.11, um, he says, therefore, if either Moses saw God, if neither Moses saw God, nor Elias, nor Ezekiel, who did see many of the heavenly things, and if the things which they did see were resemblances of the Lord's glory and prophecies of things to come, it is plain that the Father indeed is invisible, concerning whom also the Lord said, no man that seeth God any time, but his word at his own pleasure, and for the profit of such as behold, revealed the brightness of the Father and explained his providences. So that little summary kind of introduces this big section, if you would. Yeah. Right? It's the sun. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, um, I just wanted to pick up in the, in the section before, too. Yes. Um, that uh, uh, like on page 371, I've made a note here. Yes. Um, toward the bottom there um, in section 10, um, it was made even more, still more evident by Ezekiel that the prophets had a partial sight of God's providential doings, but saw not properly God himself. Um, so that, I thought that was worth noting because, um, uh, you know, the, as you pointed out, the Father through all this is invisible. He remains invisible. And what is made visible is the activity of the Word of God in the world um, in those various ways that you described. Um, and um, so I just think that it's very important for him to lay this foundation because uh, with the coming of Christ, you know, something fundamentally has changed. We be, we see in a way that we yeah. saw internally, if you will, before. But, well, um, well, again, as, as I read from John 14, when there's Philip standing right in front of him saying, show us the Father. Mm -hmm. And Jesus saying, I've been with you. 
Have you have you not been listening? <laughs> I uh, Philip, I, 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 hello, you know, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> well, hey, Marcus, I was going to ask you a question. Well, we're because we're in that section on page three seventy three. I was I've been puzzling over this. I don't have an answer to it, but um, it's about um, Saint John the Evangelist, his vision in in chapter one of the book of Revelation. Yeah. Um, uh, so right in the middle of page 373 there. Um, uh, but when John endured not the vision, uh, for he saith, I fell at his feet as dead, that it might be fulfilled, which was written, no man seeth God and shall live. The word, both to quicken him and remind him that it is he on whose bosom he lay at supper, inquiring who it was that was beginning to betray him, said, I am the first and I am the last who am both living and was dead. And behold, I live forever and ever and have kept the keys of death and hell. I was just so fascinated with that, to pull that passage from Revelation at this con in this context. Any thoughts you have on that? Um, well, right before it, he said, in some relates to the end as the fine brass heated in the furnace, which is the strength of faith and the persevering might of prayers. Therefore, it is the fire which is to blaze out, which cometh in the end of times. The reason I think that jumped out at him, and we might get to it in, in book four, is I think Irenaeus is in the same tradition of the New Testament writers as well as our Lord Jesus that believed that the end was imminent. Mm -hmm. They believed that the end was imminent. They lived their entire faith believing the end was imminent. That's what our Lord said we're supposed to do. That's why all those parables about um, the thief in the night or, you know, the guy who was out building barns and then Jesus says, hey, you know, you're, you're coming tonight or the or the, the foolish virgins, the ten virgins and the five foolish, don't know when he's coming. And so you got to watch and be ready, Matthew 23 and 4, about the end times and the second coming. And the, What's the answer? Watch and be ready, watch and be ready. All the New Testament writers, every single one of them believed that Christ was coming soon. And when did we lose that in the history of the church? When did we lose this core conviction that this world is temporary, our citizenship is in a different world, and so we don't get wedded to this world because we're citizens of the next, and we are to live our lives every day in the imminent expectation. The reason this came up with Irenaeus is that's the way he thinks. I think. Yeah, you know, and and the answer to your question probably is when did it first happen? Uh, probably we need to blame Eusebius of Caesarea um, for at least part of it because you know he thought that the Emperor Constantine was that was basically the the millennium. We were living in the millennium at that point. Um, well, the, 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 the millennium had happened with the persecution, and that was not over. Yeah, that was a different. Yeah. I mean, following Saint Augustine in the City of God, I hate to say that as if I'm an expert in the City of God, but I'm certainly far from it by any means. But it seems to me that the Church has taught for a long time that we follow Augustine and Ambrose. I think it was Ambrose that believed that. Catholics are generally are amillennialists. Yeah. Is that the thousand years doesn't represent a literal thousand years, but represents a long period of time that began with, at least began either with the incarnation or began with the ascension of Christ and extends until the second coming. And we're living in that. So in that sense, I agree with Eusebius, is that we're, 
we're living in those thousand years. But his understanding of thousand years was slightly different. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, when do I believe we lost it? I believe we began losing it during the time of Constantine. When it seems to me that not just a great variety of people, but even the leaders in the church began focusing more on this existence mm -hmm. and less and less on the next. We still may have declared in the Nicene Creed that we believe in the second, that he's going to come again in judgment. We still might say that every time in mass, but we don't take it seriously. We don't live our lives. We live our lives if we're going to live forever, folks. We do. Even this time we're living on now, there's lots of writers. You can go on podcasts and lots of people think this is the end. And this is, you, you know, that this is the worst time we've been through since, you know, then, then what's, what's your since? You know, I mean, you can name it. But every one of them believes that this is a time of cleansing. Because they all assume there's light at the end of the tunnel. It'll be fine. They never think that that we're in that difficult time. I think we are. I think we're in the time in Revelation. I shouldn't say this. I, I think we're in the time of Revelation 20 where the devil has been loosed. We're in the time of the apostasy that was, we're, we're, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse, folks. Not better. My view, personal view. I'm sympathetic to it. You know, there's so many cats let out of so many bags that we're not going to be able to get back in again. Or to use another metaphor, so much toothpaste has been squeezed out of those tubes. It's, it's tough. Now's the time to live our faith. That's what, to me, Aramaeus is saying. That's, yeah, I like that. That's a good message here. It's about living our faith now. Now. We might meet our maker tonight. You know, everybody's, everybody's you know, worried about what's going to happen at all the capitals in the United States in the next couple days. You know, by the time this broadcasts, we'll know no. what happened on Inauguration Day. We don't know today, but we'll know. You know, will the world end? I don't know, but we need to recognize that we may stand before God for how we live by grace. To me, that's why he keeps coming back to Revelation. That's why he emphasizes it's about love. You know, and that's been so watered down. Mm-hmm. It's been so watered down. People, when they say that, when I say it's all about love, they're hearing us as more of a progressive gospel that the truth doesn't matter. It's just about love. Remember the Poseidon adventure? You know, it's just all about love. You know, in the morning after, it's all about, no, that's not what we're talking about. It's a, Love is a total humble surrender to Christ in everything. That's what love of God is about. And to me, that's what Irenaeus is. He's still of that tradition. Yeah. This, this is before yeah. the laxity that came during Constantine, in my view. Yeah. yeah. Okay, another summary is in, um, just for example, you go to page 377, and there's so much in between, Monsignor, so you might want to jump on, because he talks about how Christ is seen in the visions, he's talking about he's, how he's seen in the deeds of the prophets, Big section there, Hosea, Moses, Rahab, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, how the church is typified and all those things. It would be neat to look at all those. Um, but if you go to page 377, he said there, about halfway through, and so far indeed he was by his patriarchs and prophets prefiguring and foretelling things future exercising beforehand his part in God's ordained ways and training his heritage to obey God and to be strangers in the world and to follow his word and to foresignify what is to come. For with God nothing is void nor without significancy. So, I mean, that sounds like a summary of things we've just been talking about, Monsignor. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. To be strangers in the world. That's what, we're, that's what we're supposed to be. And he's saying it's been in the patriarchs, it's been in the prophets, prefiguring, foretelling, looking forward. There's one continuity here, as Pope Benedict Emeritus would say. And then he goes on in chapter... 22, but in the last times, when the fullness of the time of liberty arrived, the word himself, by his own 
self washed away the filth of the daughter of Zion with his own hands washing the feet of his disciples. So Christ throughout the Old Testament was seen in appearances, he was seen in vision, he was seen in the deed, and now we, he brings us to the point where it's in Christ himself that the Father is revealed, right? Let's see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, Marcus, if I, yes. we, I just wanted to go back, if we could, to, yep. there was something that, um, let's see, where am I here? Page, um, uh, well, page, start page 374. Yes. Um, two, these are two points I wanted to make here on this one, um, page 374. Um, and we're in section 12. Um, just actually a little before it, uh, top of 374, thus in each instance the word of God hath a sort of outline of things to come and hath manifested unto man, as it were, the special features of the Father's providence teaching us the things of God, not only by visions which were seen and by discourses which were preached, but by indeeds also he appeared to the prophets, um, and you pointed that out. So, so that was where Christ is active in the Old Testament in these three ways. But then if you go to the end, uh, uh, toward the bottom of the page, um, that which the prophets in his acted typically, the apostle shows to have been truly done by Christ in the church. Um, so what, what the apostles experienced and revealed about God was a type, you know, in other words, it anticipated, but what the apostles proclaimed was the real thing. And I, I see here, this is St. Irenaeus saying how the apostolic vocation is, is literally to make Christ present in the church. Um, So, they belong to the same family, but something is fundamentally changed here. It, um, that jumped out at me. Well, to me, this confirms again something that so many of us today, two thousand years later, just take for granted. We've heard it many times. We read it in the New Testament. That it's good for us to appreciate the fact that when the New Testament authors, they were being fairly bold when they were taking Old Testament Mm -hmm. appearances, visions, and deeds, and then interpreting them as types of things in the church. And that was fairly new. The audacity of these non-Levitical priests, Pharisees, Sadducees, they have the audacity to be claiming from the Old Testament things yeah. that are now being fulfilled in the church, in this, this this little offshoot of weirdos. And they're saying, no, 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 this stuff pointed to us. And a good example of that is the 12 apostles, the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes, right. Or or the the choosing of Peter as the receiver of the keys is is typified in Isaiah where you have the kings of Judah who have their assistants who receive the keys for the authority of the king. And that's Jesus giving the keys to Peter, the type they're there. And that's, that's what's all summarized in that little paragraph you point out. And then the other thing I was going to say about that before we turn the page here, on page 375, um, this is a section that fascinates me as well because you see, he's he's showing that the, the church of the Gentiles is also found in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And he gives us 
a couple of examples. Um, one is, of course, the is Rahab the harlot. Um, we'll actually go to the, let's go first to the bottom of page 374. Moses' wife, um, the, his wife Zipporah, the Ethiopian woman whom he made an Israelite, she is a, she is a type of the Gentile church yeah. or the universal church, if you will, or the, maybe we say the Catholic church, you know, that we're all part of this family. So there's, there's, um, there's Zipporah and then there's Rahab on the next page. Um, um, Rahab the harlot, um, she condemned herself as a Gentile guilty of all sins. She becomes uh, now also a, uh, a type of the Gentile church. The other thing, Marcus, I, I really was fascinated with this. It just, you know how we're at the age where we sometimes forget things. Um, <laughs> What'd you say? Irenaeus was a lot younger than we were when he wrote this. But, I, you know, it's hard when you don't have a Bible, when you have to commit so much to memory. Yeah, We have a just a slight mistake that Irenaeus makes here um, <laughs> on page 375 here. First paragraph there. Um, uh, he says, and so to Rahab the harlot, while she condemned herself as a Gentile, guilty of all sins, did nevertheless receive the three explorers who were exploring the whole earth and hide them in her house. The father, I mean, and the son with the Holy Spirit. So that uh, Irenaeus says that the shelter that she gave, those three represented the, the Trinity. Well, that's a beautiful typology, except um, if you go to... Um, if you go to Joshua 2.4, where this story comes from, there are not three visitors, but there's two visitors. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so I just think, I was trying to imagine, poor old St. Irenaeus, he was probably doing this from memory. <laughs> well, and the other thing is we don't have, we don't have copies of the, the Gnostics critical review of against heresies. No. Uh, wouldn't you have loved to see what they would have said? They oh. might have jumped on this. They might have ignored everything else and say, Irenaeus, you got this baby wrong here. I mean, come <laughs> on. you know. And they might have missed everything else, which so often happens when when you go public with something and they'll, they'll pick up on the one thing you screwed up on and they'll ignore everything else. That's funny that that you did. You know, you could kind of see what you know if you were doing biblical study in in this age of scrolls. Yep, <laughs> you need you have to have a good memory. Scripture has to be committed to memory. Well, another thing that points out, you know, I got to keep track on time here, but that points out, you know, today we have a different view of the New Testament documents than they would have at this point. Mm -hmm. And today, I, don't, I can't imagine any of us feeling that we have the authority to, to change a word in the New Testament if we were making a copy of it for our friends. I mean, it wouldn't even cross our mind. Right. Yeah, right. Which, which makes me, I don't want to go public on this, but that makes me, when I think about some of the translations that are out there and what people have done, I thought, well, who did they think they were, you know, to change the psalm just to make it so we could say them better. But anyway, but the point is, it, it wasn't the same back then. So when we do critical studies of Scripture, we often find that some copiers changed words. And... You know, today we can't imagine it, but in those days they were passing along letters and they were wondering, well, did did the last copier get it right? Mm. And I read this thing and it doesn't quite make sense. So I, I think he screwed up when that guy copied the last one. So I'm gonna I'm gonna correct it in my copy. And that's the reason in most a lot of our Bibles, 
you look in the footnotes and they're going to say, well, there are certain, certain copies that have it different than the way we have. And that's why this interesting that, you know, maybe a copier of Irenaeus, the next time they might have corrected that. Irenaeus got it wrong, but it's hard to correct it because he made it a type of the Trinity. So how am I going to correct that? That's why they had to leave it in. They had to leave the mistake in, otherwise they had to take the whole section out. Right? That's right, yeah. It's interesting that Dr. Keeble did comment on it in his notes. He, he but, didn't. Uh... He missed it too. What's he going to say? He's he's kind of stuck there. He does make other corrections, but this place you're exactly right. He kind of skipped over that. All right, good. So we had gone through, uh, and you, I, I love what you're doing, Monsignor. If you see me jumping ahead too far, go ahead and get back because I'm trying to get us through this section. We just looked at the summary that was on page 377. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Christ, as you said, has has been there all along. And then now we get to the point where Christ himself, himself, is revealing this. And on, on, um, on, on page 378, there's a, a, a thing that I wanted to point out, and that's in chapter, in section two, um, there's a neat, some neat stuff in here. He says, for Christ came not on their account only, who believed on him in the times of Tiberius Caesar, neither did the Father make provision for those men alone who now exist, but for all men, altogether, who from the beginning, because of their excellency in their generation, have both feared and loved God, and conversed justly and piously with their neighbors, and desired to see Christ and to hear his voice. Therefore, all such he will raise from their sleep before the rest in his second coming, and will awaken both them and the rest who shall be judged and will give them a part in his kingdom. Wow. It's, that's a spectacular section. It is. And so, you know, in heaven, think of who our, our, our neighbors will be. Um, all these great saints from the Old Testament. I mean, it's, we, you know, it's from the beginning of time to the end of time. And Marcus, the other thing you read that just jumped out at me now, um, um, because of the excellency in their generation. Um, Because they were created in the image of God. They had, they had, if they would simply be true to that image of God that is in every human being. Um, and as the very beginning, you said, you know, through love, especially through love, these are, these are means by which we draw close to God. And, yeah. Um, anyway, I just this, to it's me, just a marvelous example of the family of faith. The, again, I remember when this was said by Irenaeus, one seventy-five, and it's before the theological doctrinal battles of the fourth, the fifth, the sixth century. It's before the division of the East and West in the eleventh century. And it's before the theological battles of the 16th century that led in the reformers who were challenging the church's authority on so many things. So it's before the, if you will, the lockdown of the Counter-Reformation and Trent and if you will, a, a lot of doctrinal theological lockdown that happened from Trent until Vatican II. And so we have in the, in the documents of Vatican II, especially in Lumen Gentium, especially in Lumen Gentium chapter 15 and 16, 
that's the document on the church in Vatican II, as well as in in the Constitution of of, of Vatican II, which is Gaudium et Spes, Church in the World. What we see, I think, in Vatican II, in Lumen Gentium, as it deals with Christians outside the Catholic Church, as it deals with believers outside Christianity, as it believes of even atheists, what I see in that is is a is an appreciation of what Irenaeus is trying to say here. This is what this was what awakened Peter when mm-hmm. Peter was in an upper room having a dream. When a guy down below in the building was having an experience of Christ, Peter was in the upper room having a vision about whether I should eat uncleaned or clean food, and and God is saying, whoever fears me. And that's what Peter said at the first consul in in Acts Mm -hmm. chapter 15. Mm -hmm. He'd come to realize Mm -hmm. that, as it says here, for all men altogether who from the beginning, because of their excellently in their generation, have both feared and loved God. This isn't indifferentism, folk. This is a recognition that from the very beginning, we, we have this, we've been created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, and it's a part of our conscience to know and love God and our neighbor. It's all there. And that's what Vatican II talks about in Lumen Gentium 15 and 16, is that it's all there. It, and it's not about, it doesn't matter whether you're Christian or whether you're Catholic, it doesn't matter what religion it is, no. When we stand before God, it's going to be how we've lived out our knowledge of him in our life. Am, am I being heretical, Monsignor? No, no, I don't think so. I, no, I don't think so. Oh, it's just, you know, and... Um, Down there, he's got this line. He justified the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. It's the both. The church is made up of both. Okay, but in the end, it's faith, you know. And you know, when when I was just go on here a little bit on in section or in chapter twenty three, the next page three seventy nine. Well, who are those that labored, who ministered to the providences of God? Clearly, the patriarchs and the prophets who also prefigured our faith and spread abroad in the earth the coming of the Son of God, who and of what sort he shall be, uh, that the men who were to come afterwards, having the fear of God, might easily receive the coming of Christ, instructed as they were by the prophets. And then Irenaeus goes on in this chapter to give us two examples blew me away. The first is Joseph and Mary. They discern and understand their vocation through Old Testament texts. The angel gives them Old Testament texts to reflect upon. Oh, yeah. Which, I mean, you know, I think of how important I picked, I'm looking across my room now and I'm seeing, and I have a copy of the New Testament in one volume and I'm thinking, I really should give that away and just have one Bible. <laughs> you know, because but, I think I think Catholics need to do some more work with Old Testament studies. I couldn't agree with you 100% more. I have left over from when I was a Protestant minister. I have the little New Testament that I took with me when I would do pastoral rounds. Yeah. I knew the Bible. It wasn't I didn't. It wasn't I, I, I had jettisoned the Old Testament, but it's a New Testament. In this, he's saying not just the Old Testament. He's saying Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And all these examples he gives, how Isaiah, yeah. Isaiah was there for Joseph. It was Isaiah that Philip used when the, when the Ethiopian eunuch was sitting there reading Isaiah. God used Isaiah <laughs> to convert the Ethiopian eunuch on page... On page yeah, 380. Three, uh, 380. It was Isaiah. 
And Marcus, the other thing I got, I just smiled about this was, um, you know, in, sec in section two, basically Irenaeus says that Philip, um, the deacon, Philip, he really didn't have, it was quite easy, his work. He didn't have to work that hard to convert the Ethiopian oh, yeah. eunuch <laughs> because he already had these texts as his foundation. So Philip basically could get in and get out, <laughs> get him baptized. But, um, but uh, you know, toward, at the very bottom of the page, therefore Philip had no great trouble with him. <laughs> he having been made ready to his hand in the fear of God by the prophets. So the pre-evangelization that was going on by um, by the Ethiopian study of these um, Old Testament texts paved the way. Jump over to page 381, continuing on your thought. Uh -huh. We have Paul using the scriptures, saying that evangelizing the Jews were helped because they had the scriptures. But right. it was tougher yeah. <laughs> to evangelize those Gentiles because they didn't have the scriptures. In other words, it's as if his calling was more difficult than Peter's, if you will, because he was called to be apostle of the Gentiles, Well, they didn't have the scriptures. So what are you going to base it on? You know, that's why he tried at Athens to use their their background. Didn't quite work very well when he was trying to do that. But On the Areopagus, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. But but it is also true that in the early church, Father, you know this far better than I do, that Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria and others were were trying to mine the idea that God had all also been preparing the Gentiles through their writings, and that was a big idea in the early church, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or even leading to Origen, although Origen went more back to the scriptures. But Clement of Alexandria, particularly Plato yeah. and Socrates and all these were pre-Christian foundations. Mm -hmm. They're trying to build on that idea. But yeah. I, I have one quote here, 424.2. But the Gentiles had to learn even this very thing, that such works are bad and ruinous, unprofitable and hurtful to the doers of them. Wherefore, it was harder work for him who had received the apostleship of the Gentiles than for such as preached the Son of God in, in the circumcision. He's talking to Peter there. For they yeah. were helped by the Scriptures, which the Lord confirmed and fulfilled, being when he came, such as he was announced, but... Here it was a strange sort of teaching and a new doctrine to those uncircumcised Gentiles. And he goes all through that. These things were preached to the Gentiles in discourse without scriptures. Therefore, the faith of the Gentiles is shown to be the more noble in that they attain the word of God without instruction in letters. That's in the middle of page 382, right before yeah, at the end. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Irenaeus is lifting up the Gentiles' conversion as more noble because they didn't have the scriptures. They didn't have the help of the letters. <laughs> All right. Now, let's see. I want us to, we got a little, well, no, I, I shouldn't say we got a little more time. We're already over an hour. I'm sorry, folks. I, yeah. I, I wanted to, to complete chapter. 25. 25, right? I kind of wanted to. But you know what? I've decided I, I've I, I don't have the authority to do this, but we're gonna we're gonna stop there. And okay. one of the no, reasons you do have the authority. Well, the reason you I'm are... gonna show that, let me show you this page. There's what there's what chapter 25 looks like in my book. In, in other words, it's in, I've got the entire chapter highlighted. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So we've we we touched on Section three, yes, the bottom, the last part of it. So we've covered a little bit of chapter twenty-five. But why don't we? We'll pick up next time with twenty-five as our beginning, and and okay. we'll see how far we get next time, Monsignor. Is that something okay. really good? We're, we're, so we'll we'll just pick up then. So Monsignor, why don't you close us with prayer? Right, uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you, blessed Lord, for the one family of faith to which we belong. And we pray that 
um, our hearts and our minds will be open to um, the things that we can learn throughout the scriptures and that we can be so thankful for the things that the prophets and the patriarchs have left for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Matsi. And thank all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. Again, uh, I want to remind you to check out chnetwork.org about all the other resources as well as video programs that we have, all designed to help you appreciate this great faith we've been given and sometimes take for granted. We don't want to take for granted our faith in Jesus Christ, especially during these difficult times. Look forward to seeing you next week.